0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I'm excited to bring you my conversation with H.W. Brands. Dr. Brands nearly needs no introduction. He is an American historian that's written over 30 books on a variety of topics throughout American history. His most recent book came out last October and is titled The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. He's also a professor of history at University of Texas at Austin. Today's conversation covers everything from the Mexican-American War and the gold rush to the value of tech companies venture capital, and it all relates, I promise. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. H.W. Brands. We've spent a lot of time with John C. Fremont um, in this kind of early period of California's state history. Um, and when you read about Fremont, he's often uh, labeled as an explorer. Uh, do you think this term is appropriate given his role and involvement in the Mexican American War? Would you say he's more of an explorer or perhaps a scout, a military scout?
1: Well, Fremont was an army officer. So his explorations were done at the expense of and under the auspices of the U.S. Army, which meant that he took a different view than somebody who was just, let's say, a scientific explorer or or somebody who was uh, looking for commercial opportunities. He was an agent of the United States government and with all that entailed. So at any moment, if he received a message from Washington that said, "Okay, uh, well, we're at war with Mexico then as an army officer, he would do what army officers do. So, but I should say that the American exploration of the far west was done primarily by the military. And so it wasn't unusual for Fremont to wear two hats, the explorer and the army officer. Okay. And so it's part, it's kind of
0: part of our, uh, maybe our modern day kind of moralisms, looking at the past when you, You know, wanting to see uh, someone exploring for exploration purposes, but oftentimes people had dual motives or many
1: different identities contained within one person. Well, I'll put it this way. Fremont would not have been in the West doing his exploring if the U.S. government had not funded it. So he wasn't a scientist himself. He was an army officer. And I'll point out that much of the scientific research that has been done in the United States from then until now is funded by the U.S. government, often through the military. So it was the Pentagon that funded a lot of recent scientific research. So the thing is that there were, corporations were in no position in those days, there weren't really corporations, to fund this kind of research. Occasionally, philosophical groups, the American Philosophical or Society, something like this, would put together some money and fund an exploring journey, but nothing on the scale of what the government could do. So with with Fremont, I I think it's important to say he was an army officer first, and as an army officer, he did exploration. He wasn't an explorer first, although from the standpoint of his career advancement and the celebrity that he was developing with the American people, there were lots of army officers, but there was only one path marker to the West, John C. Fremont. So he played that for all it was worth.
0: I think it's true to say that that's uh, the nature of a lot of big movements and exploration. I mean, I think about, you know, as back as Christopher Columbus, or even if you think about uh, the role that, uh, you know, the fight with communism and the Soviet Union played in the space race, you know, the, there's these two competing, you know, there's this kind of scientific exploration of space, but then there's also at the same time, the political realities that uh, the government, if, in order to get involved has to have some incentive uh, or some reason uh, that benefits them in some capacity. So sure. I think it's I think it's true.
1: And your analogy is very good because the explorations of Fremont were sort of like the moonshots of his day. They, right. they required a lot of money. And the only agency that had that kind of money to spend was the government.
0: Absolutely. Um, so I, I've had a few people on to talk about the Mexican-American War, and I've asked each of them this question, Uh, Because it, it, you know, uh, when you're a historian, you're kind of, you look back, but it's hard to to discern sometimes inevitability. And so the question is, uh, do you think the war with Mexico was inevitable? And then related to that, uh, do you think the gold rush would have happened in 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 a similar way had there been these, you know, boundaries and borders between these two countries?
1: Well, I'm a firm believer that nothing is inevitable until it actually happens. And so, and even then it's not inevitable. The, the government of Mexico could have avoided a war with the United States if Mexico had been willing to sell California to the United States. James Polk was determined to acquire California. He would have been happy to buy it. He didn't, he didn't particularly want a war, but when, California, when Mexico would not sell California, then Polk concluded the only way to get California was by war and he was happy to do that. So if the government of Mexico had been in a, political position, where it could have said to the Mexican people, look, we can't defend California against the norte-americanos, um, so we might as well sell it. We might as well get something for it. And it, the way things turned out, that would have been a better deal, but it would have been an intolerable blow to Mexican pride because Mexico had just lost Texas to the Americans. And most people in Mexico did not distinguish between the Texans and the government of the United States. These were all Americans, these are all the gringos. And so, yeah, the war could have been avoided, but the loss of California probably could not have been avoided because the United States was stronger than Mexico and the government of the United States was determined to have California. And under those circumstances, the United States was gonna get California. The only question was how. Yeah, and you know, when we talked about the
0: conflict uh on the show about some of the major battles you know we have to put quotations around it because it's oftentimes <laughs> a couple hundred guys in the desert running circles around each other and you know there wasn't much of a fight over california which you know if you think about in the grand schemes of things is ironic given what california has become it's the most oh, vital yeah. asset that they had
1: sure and so this, this is interesting because the war was triggered by the desire of the Polk administration for California. But very little of the fighting was done in California. There was a lot of fighting done on the border of Texas and then in Mexico proper. And so this campaign on the part of the American government to get California took place mostly in Mexico itself. And at that point, the question was, is the United States gonna take simply California or all of Mexico? There was some desire on the part of of some people in the United States, that the U.S. auto annex all of Mexico instead of just the northern half, which is what the United States came away with. Well,
0: let's—I you know—I I don't always like to play hypothetical games, but let's play one for a minute. Um, let's say you know the war is inevitable in some ways, uh, given the the movement um, of the United States exploring the territory, you know the kind of the the military buildup towards this. But let's say it's pushed back five, six, seven years. Um, gold is discovered in California. Um, how, do, how do you think it would have transpired if there were borders or boundaries between
1: these countries and there was gold in the way? Uh, yeah, so this is one of those imponderables. Or even if you don't have to push the war back, if the discovery of gold had happened sooner, because it was independent of the war, of the, right. the events that gave rise to the war. So suppose James Marshall arrived in California five years earlier, and John Sutter sent him up to build a sawmill. Uh, He might have had to find some other workers besides Mormons, but the Mormons went west for reasons independent of the war with Mexico. So if gold had been discovered, how would that have changed things? I don't think it would have changed the way it turned out. If anything, it would have increased the cupidity of the Polk administration. Boy, California is really worth having. There would not have been a gold rush to California in the same way That there was once it became American territory. Because invading a foreign country, well, it would have put the gold rushers probably up against Mexican soldiers. Mexican law was different than American law. And the striking thing about the gold discovery and the nature of the gold rush was that it had to happen on federal land for it to happen the way it did. Because America's natural resource policy in those days was to privatize public resources as quickly as possible. And if it happened today, it would be very different because the government has different rules over how public resources are handed over to the private sector. But it was in that time when American policy was, if you find something good on public land, go take it. And in fact, if it had happened, while it was still part of Mexico, eh, okay, presumably the Mexican government would have uh, issued leasing rights to somebody, but there wouldn't have been the influx from all over the world, because American law said, you don't have to be an American citizen to get this gold. Anybody can come and everybody did come. So I don't know that California today would look a lot of different than if this had happened say in 1843 instead of 1848, but California in 1850 would have looked a lot different.
0: Yeah I, I speculate that there would have been increased conflict uh you know the a reconcentration of the Mexican military to protect you know what what they might see as you know you know before they saw it as a frontier but they might see it as their future uh in California and then I you know wonder you know given where gold was discovered you know whether uh the Mexican border would be a little bit more north of where it is today I don't know I mean it's just a speculation but
1: so one hypothetical is that if Mexico discovered this gold, then an alliance between Mexico and, say, Britain might not have been out of the question because Mexico would have had something to offer Britain. And so if the British put their ships in San Francisco Bay and in Monterey Bay and off the coast, then that would have had a deciding, a decidedly dampening effect on American heart. On the other hand, there's no telling. Because Americans were exceedingly sensitive to British influence in the area, and that might have provoked Americans the more. Strikingly, I'll say this, though, and this might sound counterintuitive. The discovery of gold in California, the gold itself probably would not have meant as much to Polk, for example, as one might think, because it was understood that this is going to go into private hands. What Polk wanted was the ports of California, the bay, San Francisco Bay, San Diego Bay. That's what he wanted, because those were going to be basically um, sort of national resources in a way that gold wasn't going to be. It would be nice if gold comes into the economy. But the strategic importance of San Francisco and San Diego, that's what Polk was eyeing, because he saw for the United States a Pacific future. And these would be the launching pads for American commerce and American Navy ships heading out into the Pacific.
0: Do you think it's fruitful to play hypothetical games
1: like this? Up as a to point. So if you ask, so if um, Abraham Lincoln had not opposed Southern secession, what would have happened in the next six months or year? I think you can do that because six months from now doesn't look a lot different from today. But to to try to project it 10 years out, no, the farther you get from the present, the more you're just guessing. So as I say, what would California today look like if Gold had been discovered five years earlier? I have no idea. But I have some confidence that California in 1850 would have looked different than it did under that, under the scenario you described. Because these, you know, high,
0: you know, alternate universe hypothetical uh, history, TV shows, books, movies, they're, they're very popular. And, I, and it, it's an interesting thing as a historian to think about, you know,
1: why? Why are they so popular? Well, they're popular because there is that big what if element. And people like to imagine a different reality than they inhabit. From the standpoint of historical analysis, they're useful, as I say, up to a point, because they require the person conducting the exercise to ask, so what was crucial in the moment we're talking about for things to go this way rather than that way? And if you change one thing, does that change it? So if James Watt had never lived, would there have been an industrial revolution? Yes, because that's one of those things that was way overdetermined and there were thousands of people who were involved in the Industrial Revolution. But if Abraham Lincoln had made the same decision that James Buchanan did, then the Civil War wouldn't have happened at all or wouldn't have happened the way it did. So there are moments when an individual decision, an individual person, can make all the difference in the world. But the farther you get from that moment, then the influence of that individual, it gets attenuated by all the other things that are involved in the course of history.
0: I mean, it's a lot of that, uh, you know, the controversies about inventors and who invented something because of all these simultaneous inventions of important things. And then also this concept that it's, there's this one person in the laboratory that had a eureka moment. But oftentimes it's a team of people. And if one guy, you know, if Thomas Edison was hit by a bus walking across the street, we'd still have many of the things that he invented, quote unquote.
1: So that's exactly it. That's exactly it.
0: Yeah, so um, who came to California?
1: Uh, after the discovery of the gold
0: during the gold rush, who came?
1: Yeah. Okay. So once gold was discovered, news got out, and news got out across the Pacific to the West sooner than it got to the East because in those days, uh, Oregon was right next door to California. The news would go up the coast by coastal packet, and Oregon was largely depopulated. There's the people who went to Oregon to settle farms and acquire land, they realized, and this was a a regular calculation for the people who went to California. I'm not going to California to stay there. I'm going to California for maybe a summer because I hear I can make as much money in a summer as it would take me a decade to make and save up in Oregon. So they came from Oregon. People came from Mexico. The first people to arrive in California after of gold were Mexican miners. There had been gold mining in Mexico for a long time. They just walked and it was easy enough to get there. People came from Hawaii, the Sandwich Islands, as they were called, because the news got there almost immediately. It was a 10-day voyage from San Francisco to Hawaii. And once they heard there's gold there, of course, once they realized that gold went to the person who got there first, there was this rush to get there. If you wait, then you lose your chances. The news got to Australia. The news got to Australia, clear across the Pacific, and to China before it got to New York, because getting, News from San Francisco to New York typically required, well, one way was to go all the way around South America. California in 1848 was about as far from New York by the ordinary means of getting there as you could be and still be on the planet Earth, because it was fifteen thousand miles all the way around South America. Now you could go overland, but you had to have a pretty good reason for going overland. People didn't do it, just at the drop of the hat. And so it's striking that gold was discovered in January. 1848. But it wasn't until 1849, that's why they're called the 49ers that all those people came from America. It took nearly a year for people to get the start. And furthermore, if you were coming across the continent, you couldn't you wouldn't go in the middle of winter. I mean even if you could survive the snow, your animals couldn't. And so people got the news. James Polk announced it in his annual message in December 1848. So that's 11 months after the discovery. But people still have to wait for the winter to get over and for the grass to green up on the plains and prairies to head out. And that's why the the large immigration from the United States doesn't happen until the summer of 1849. But by then, there were already people from Mexico. There were people from Peru and Venezuela. There were people from the Hawaiian Islands, the Sandwich Islands. There were people from Oregon. People were arriving from Australia. They were starting to come from China. Eventually, the word got out to Europe. In fact, if the news went around South America, it was just as easy, just as close to get to France as it was to New York. And so people in France in Belgium and London Britain heard about this. And again, they heard that these Americans were given away the gold and all you had to do was get there. And so people came literally from all over the world. The, The one inhabited continent that was not represented much at all was Africa. And Africa was in a different state of economic development, and so people just weren't traveling much from Africa. Although, interestingly enough, among the immigrants from the eastern United States were Southerners, some of whom took their enslaved workers along with them. And the workers, well, their position in California was kind of vague. Were they slaves or not? Before California became a state, they were a territory, and this was at a time when the authority, uh, well, whose authority over the Western territories regarding slavery was up in the air. Eventually, not eventually, by the end of 1850, uh, California had become a state with an anti-slavery constitution. Nonetheless, there was still this ambiguity around, okay, well, So maybe you can't buy a slave, maybe you can't sell a slave in California, but if you have a slave, can you use the slave? And in fact, what happened was that people who brought their slaves to California discovered the slaves would run away and there's nobody to help them catch them. And furthermore, the slaves were worth less as property than the gold they could get. So nobody bothered to chase them. So anyway, people, California by 1851 or two was, Quite possibly the most cosmopolitan place, certainly in the United States, and one of the most cosmopolitan places on earth, because this gold was available for anybody to come get
0: it so before this interview, I revisited your book on the gold rush, and um, as someone that's lived in San Francisco, I thought you captured it pretty well when you said that San Francisco is at once urban and a frontier, and I still think that that's true in a lot of ways. I mean, if you think about uh, that legacy, and then you think about Silicon Valley, um, you think about you know, uh, politics in the 60s in San Francisco, uh, gay rights, every, every, it, it, it's a city that seems to contain itself but also reach beyond itself. Um, so do you, do you think that's a legacy that started uh, during the gold rush period?
1: Yeah, so the nature of immigration to California meant that California was gonna be more urban than any other state at the time, because there was precious little farming in California. All the people who came to California, they didn't come to plant farms. They came to dig gold. And so they would pour into San Francisco, but they would do it just on their way to the mines. And so it had a very transient population and people would come and they'd stay a day or two or a week or two, and then head off to the gold fields. And once they got to the gold fields, they didn't settle you know, far apart the way farmers do they would get in mining camps as they called them. But the mining camps could be 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 people. And they would spring up overnight. Nobody imagined that they would be permanent. In fact, they would just be made you know, with tents and they'd be made out of canvas. And the whole idea was to spend all of your time digging, digging for gold and take that gold and then go back where you came from that was the original plan of most of immigrants to California they did not intend to stay in california they went there whether from the eastern united states or australia or venezuela or oregon or hawaii or china they went to california to basically fill their pockets with gold and go back home and basically get a jump start on their economic hopes whether it was to start a business in washington dc or buy another farm in oregon or Um, build a house for your family in China. Now, as a matter of fact, once they got to California, first of all, they didn't, most of them didn't find as much gold as they had imagined or dreamed. But secondly, many of them discovered that California is a pretty nice place to live. It's beautiful. And, And in time, California developed an agricultural base to support the people who had come. And a lot, perhaps most of the people who came to California had been farmers where they were coming from or had farming sort of in the blood in the background. And California turned out to be a pretty good place to start a farm. And so I don't have any numbers on how many people went to California intending to go home, but stayed. Uh, But it's substantially more than people expected. And then so the California population boom didn't go away. The, The boom in individual mining camps would go away those people didn't all go back to New York or Pennsylvania. They would move on to the next strike. And many of them stayed in California. The striking thing was, for most Chinese immigrants to California, they really intended to go home because connection to family and to tending the graves of ancestors and that, that was a big deal. But a lot of them didn't. And for them, it was probably the most, sort of emotionally wrenching thing to stay. Now, some of them imagined, okay, well, I'll live for a while in California. But then before I die, I'll go home. But very often that sort of death caught up with them before they got back. So the permanent population of Chinese in California really dates from the Gold Rush era.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, this kind of idea of coming here to make it and then sending it back. I mean, I think in a lot of ways that has continued, you know, with immigrants coming to the United States to get get good jobs and then send kind of these transfer payments back home. And it's funny how history kind of repeats itself in this way. And I, I was thinking about, um, rushing in like a gold rush and how, you know, today it's, there's so much information out there and things happen so fast. I mean, I remember reading this book, uh, by Michael Lewis about, uh, these, uh, traders that would send, you know, trade uh, signals across fiber optic cables, uh, to try and beat the competition by a half a millisecond or whatever. And it's just funny to contrast this kind of like, oh, I heard in a newspaper about this gold and I'm going to be there in 6 months and hopefully it's still there uh, versus today where things are uh, happen so fast that if you're not there at that moment, you miss it.
1: That part is true enough. The basic principle persists that who gets there first has an advantage, the first mover advantage. Right. But it's just that getting there first requires quicker reflexes today than it did then. And
0: probably more capital if I'm thinking about like North Dakota and oil. Now,
1: and that, see, that was one of the big appeals of the California Gold Rush originally, that it required almost no capital to start up a business. You had to have funds sufficient to get you to California and then to stake yourself for six months where nobody was giving you a paycheck. But in terms of the tools, you could start up with a wash pin and maybe a pick and shovel, and that was about it. Now, over time, the capital requirements for entry into the mining industry escalated. So within 10 years, almost nobody was paying for gold anymore. And now it was a corporate undertaking. With the result, the people who didn't get to California the first way discovered, in many cases, that they weren't independent operators. They were simply industrial laborers working underground for 10 hours a day. And it it was not what they had planned for at all.
0: So um, when I'm thinking about capital we've spent a good time a good amount of time meeting a lot of the uh, pre Mexican American war ranchers that had these large ranchos all across California and many of them after the gold rush went bankrupt uh, over invested in this population that was arriving and so it, it naturally leads me to the question of who ultimately made money in the gold rush who did it who 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 profited the most from it
1: the people who made the most enduring fortunes in the gold rush were not the miners themselves, and they weren't the previous residents of California. They were newcomers who discovered a business niche. So people like Leland Stanford, who had a grocery business, but then he went into the world with business. And people like Levi Strauss, who you know, made the jeans that the, the miners wore. So people who discovered that they could make money, not mining gold, but mining the miners. And, and that, was, that was a business model that one could see from the very beginning when James Marshall and uh, John Sutter, they wanted to keep the discovery as secret as they could. But there were others who said, wait a minute, that's not the business model we're working from. We, in fact, are going to spread the word. And the word will bring all sorts of people here, and then it's almost immaterial whether there's actually any gold there, because the people will come, and they'll have to be fed, and they'll have to be housed, and they'll have to be clothed, and, and we'll sell them all this stuff. And so it wasn't long before there were lots of false claims of discoveries, because if you and and I should add that people would buy and sell shares of stock in mining companies, which basically meant that they had filed for claims for, to be able to mine this particular area. And so what you do is you would stake claims, you would form a company, you would have an IPO, you would announce your, the sale of shares in your company, and then you would spread word, could be fake, in the newspapers that there was a big strike over here. And people would say, oh boy, I gotta grab shares of that company. And so when Samuel Clemens came to the West and he wound up as a journalist, um, he a lot of what he did was to report and sometimes try to debunk these claims. But he got in on the gold discoveries by speculating in these gold stocks. So there was money sort of made in speculation. The same thing is true with regarding, well, Silicon Valley today. So what's Bitcoin worth? Well, it depends on what people, what speculators today think it will be worth tomorrow and six months and six years from now.
0: I remember I read this. Strange book. It was assigned to me. I was a sophomore in college, and I had a strange philosophy professor, like we all do at some point. And he assigned this book. uh, I think the title was "The Gulf War Did Not Take Place," and it was about how it was just a media event created, uh, um, you know, to build up the industrial complex or whatever his uh, his thesis was. But uh, it sounds like you're kind of making a similar argument here in some ways obviously the gold rush happened and we're not denying that people walked on the moon we're not saying anything like this but what we are saying is that it the the reality of it was
1: contorted for so interest that there was an incentive to exaggerate yes and the incentive was not independent of the the reality because if gold had never been discovered none of these claims would have convinced anybody but once gold was discovered, and once some people did see that, yeah, fortunes were made, then there was a willingness to believe that more fortunes would be made, and a temptation to try to get down on the ground floor of this. And thinking, okay, well, I see, as with any stock, if you see the value, the price of a share of stock go up, you basically adhere to the greater fool theory, if nothing else. That I'll buy it for whatever price today because there's a greater fool out there who will pay me more for it tomorrow and let him be the one to discover that it's really not worth what it's worth. And at any given time, you can say this about the stock market. I mean, this is where we are in the stock market today on January 26th. Is Apple really worth two trillion dollars? I don't think so. By most standards, it isn't. But enough people believe that it is, that that's where it is. But tomorrow it might fall by half in price. Is Elon Musk's Tesla worth, is he really the first or second richest person on earth? You know, if so, his fortune quadrupled in the last six months. Really? Well, as long as the speculative bubble continues to grow, these are the strange things that happen. And people keep believing this could happen to them. I could be the one.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the quintessential American story, right? That you could be the one, you could be the one to, to strike it rich. And I, I think that legacy, uh, of, of going to California, uh, to become the one has persisted, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's, you you're building an app. And so I, one of my final questions is, is really about thinking about the gold Russian context of California's history. Um, because yeah. it's it's kind of in some ways I mean next to the Bear Flag Republic uh, you know uh, initial uh, takeover by those uh, guys uh, taking over forts that were undefended you know it's kind of a it's uh, it's it's a mythology in a lot of ways like uh, you know when I visited the Alamo you know and it's this big thing in my mind and when I see it this little fort you know but in, in a lot of ways I think the Gold Rush is this kind of founding mythology so can you talk about how you think the Gold Rush plays into the legacy of California
1: history and its importance? Yes, Yes. I think there's a direct line between the California gold rush and the emergence of Silicon Valley in the late 20th century. And the line is a greater comfort with risk than existed elsewhere in the United States and maybe elsewhere in the world. Before the gold rush to California, The standard notion of risk was, well, don't take it because if you fail, it reflects on you as an individual. You could call this the Puritan morality or the Puritan view of success. Uh, With the Puritans, material success reflects as much the state of your soul as it does with your simple material abilities. And if you fail, you start a business and you fail, then something's wrong with you. And the appropriate response to that is to search your soul and get right with God. Okay, that's the mindset that people have in the Eastern part of the United States. Some people come to California, they get to California and they discover, wait a minute, success or failure doesn't depend on the state of your soul, it depends on your luck. And imagine two miners who are panning for gold in a rushing stream. And one guy, and they're just working hard all day long, and one guy reaches down and picks up a nugget of gold, I'm rich. The guy 20 feet away from him the next time over reaches down and picks up a rock. The guy who picks up a rock doesn't say there's something wrong with me. He said, no, it's bad luck. So what's, what's the response in that case? You file a new claim, you try again. What California, what the Rush Experience did was to normalize risk. And so, in fact, I won't say it yet in the, the 19th century it didn't become a mark of honor to have failed, but to fail, to fail, to fail, and then succeed. So nobody holds your failures against you, they just remember the last success. This is actually crucial in the emergence of Silicon Valley in the 1970s and 80s, because it gives rise to the venture capital industry, which was crucial to the emergence of Silicon Valley. You have to be willing to bet on 20 firms, knowing that 19 of them are gonna fail. But you don't hold that against the failures, that's just the way it goes, but you make enough With the one that succeeds that you can cover the cost of all the other ones and so california and the culture of california absorbed that lesson more fully than any place else in the united states so that a full 150 years after the california gold rush this was the mindset of california and it's what gave rise this is why silicon valley is in california and let's say not in boston and cambridge on the east coast
0: yeah, it's such a interesting thing to think about. I mean, you go to Los Angeles and you go to have dinner somewhere and you've got very attractive uh waiters and waitresses that are trying to become actors. You know, you go to San Francisco, you've got these coding camps where people are lining up to 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 become rich. And I I, you know, I I have heard that line so many times and, you know, especially in the podcast world cuz there's so many podcasts about, you know, tech companies and think like Elon Musk and it's always like just all you have to do is hit it once. You just have to hit it once, strike once, and then and then you're set. And you know, you know, count count your failures as as motivation. You know, it's it's such an interesting mindset because I don't feel like it really exists uh, anywhere else. And it, it's I think in a lot of ways what makes California unique as a place.
1: Uh, but I'll, but what is what's the downside to this kind of worldview? Well, the downside is that well there are those uh, 19 failures out of the 20. And what happens to them? Because it's not always the same person that gets through. So it's the case that a lot of people came to California during the gold rush era with unrealistic expectations of what they would actually accomplish. Many went home disappointed. And the same thing has been true. California has been the land of America's dreams. Now we remember, we learn about the dreams that panned out. For the dreams that didn't, well, okay, that's a downside. The question that I guess then it comes to, is it better to have dreamed and failed than never to have dreamed at all? I mean, that's a choice for individuals to make. So all the waiters that you see in LA hoping to break through and become the next star. Well, most of them don't, but do they resent their failure or was it? This is a great, exciting opportunity. It's important, I think, that the kind of people who went to California for the gold rush, and I suspect the people who go to Silicon Valley today, they're relatively young. They're relatively, um, they're not connected to other people. Other people aren't responsible on them, so they can absorb failure for a while. And so for those waiters in LA, okay, They give themselves four or five years, and if they don't make it, then they do whatever they were gonna do otherwise. And they had a great time. So one of the things about California, especially the Gold Rush was, they all knew this was gonna be the great adventure of their lives, regardless of how it turned out. And for most of it, it was worth it for that alone.
0: Um, You know, there's this kind of rumbling or discourse running through California about leaving California. it's a, it's a failed dream. It's a failed, uh, you know, there's just not opportunity for the taxes are too high. Um, You know, there's, there's so much wealth, but it's so concentrated and people are seeing other places as the new frontier. They're seeing Idaho, they're seeing Texas. Um, um, Do you think that's just something that uh, Californians perpetually say to, to, you know, to deal with the, High income taxes and state taxes, or do you think it's uh, do you think California will reach kind of this point of just exhaustion?:
1: I don't know about exhaustion, but I will say this: the California day is definitely not the frontier of California of the 1840s and 1850. And one of the things that attracted people there was the fact that there was no heavy hand of government. You didn't pay income taxes, you didn't pay taxes to anybody, you just sort of did what you want. And so that aspect of the appeal has shifted. So in that respect, Texas today is more like California in the 1850s than California today is like California in the 1850s, in that respect. Now there are other things about California, it's got great climate, it's got beautiful scenery, and some people, and people will continue to go to California. California may have lost population on net in the last year or two, but still, that means there are thousands of people who are going to California, and they will continue to do so. So California is not going away, and, you know, this I, San Francisco is sort of at the, the cutting edge of both the upside and the downside of this. So California, I assume San Francisco, is you know, so expensive to buy property that people just you know, can't afford to live there, and so they try to go somewhere else. But in this case, California, like San Francisco, it's a victim of its own success. And you can become a victim of your own success, and then the success will go elsewhere. You know, what you have to find is a new basis for success, and you may have to make some changes. So California still has a lot going for it. It's not exactly the same stuff that had going for it in 1850, but still, you you know you, you get 35 or 40 million people you know in one place like that, and they're energetic and they're ambitious, and uh, you know this has occasion now and then thoughts that California would be better off as a country of its own, and one can make an argument that you know if California could make its own laws and policies, then it might be, and you know, I'm, I have been teaching history and I know that maps change. And I don't think there's anything that guarantees that California will be part of the United States in hundred years, For that matter that Texas will be part of the United States in 150, 100 years. I don't know. Um, so things change over time. So the attractions of California today are not the same as the attractions of California in the 1850s.
0: Let me ask you a question about where you live. Many people say Austin is the California of Texas. Would you agree with that statement?
1: Well, it sort of depends on what they mean by California and uh, what you mean by Texas. Austin has a lot of energy. Austin is very attractive to young people. At least uh, if you measure the number of people who are coming here, Austin has attracted corporations, but Austin to some degree is suffering from uh, a delayed version of the San Francisco Silicon Valley phenomenon where property values, prices in Austin are going very high. People are having a hard time. People who were here before the boom started, unless they already own property, their kids are having a hard time living anywhere near. And so it's it's a, a comparative thing. It's cheaper to live in Austin than it is in San Francisco, but it's a lot more expensive to live in Austin than it was to live in Austin 20 years ago. So it sort of depends on what you're looking for and what you expect to get there. And you know, with the influx of people, there become greater demands for the kind of stuff That you have with large groups of people. So in a frontier society, you can get away with nobody picking up the trash. But you know, once you get a lot of people living together, then there has to be government, government has regulations. And, and so, again, Austin is sort of becoming the victim of its own success. I've been living in Austin for 40 years, and I've seen this, this big change. And it's the constant lament of people who've been living in Austin, boy, it's just not what it used to be. And which is true, I mean, it's something else, but for people who arrived last year, wow, this is great. This is better presumably than where they left, that's why they came. So it's always a comparative thing. It's these the problems that California has, the problems that Austin has are better than the problems that let's say Detroit has, where you know, people are just going away because they can't support themselves. People come to Austin because their jobs, people come to California because their jobs, Now, maybe the jobs come with high price of living, but if there weren't any jobs, then you would see people really pouring out of California and pouring away from from Austin.
0: Yeah. Um, We're now going to go to my favorite part of the episodes, which is uh, book recommendations. Um, And so I was just curious about some of your favorite works of both nonfiction and fiction uh, about Western history. And I know we, we usually stick to nonfiction, but there's been so many great Western writers writing great novels that I I thought we'd include some of those if, if you had any to recommend.
1: Yeah. So I'll start with fiction. I'll just say Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose, which is a great work by a great Western writer. And um, if you want to get sort of farther East in the West, uh, Stephen Harrigan's Gates of the Owl, that's not California by means, it's about Texas, but yes, there is, There's wonderful fiction about the West. I sort of cut my teeth on uh, uh, children's books, young adult fiction when I was a kid growing up in Oregon, growing up in Portland. And there were two books by an author, now long deceased, named Mary Jane Carr. One was called Children of the Covered Wagon. Another was Young Mac of Fort Vancouver. And I imagined that I was those characters. In terms of nonfiction, for California, you can't beat the Kevin Starr series on, California. I mean, that's really the place. But I'll tell you, what hooked me was, it's not exactly a series, well, it sort of is, by one of the first historians of California in the West, a man named Hubert Howe Bancroft. This is the guy for whom the Bancroft Library at Berkeley is named. He was the great historian of the West in the late 19th, early 20th century. And he put together a series of books on the American West. And there was a history of California, there was history of the Northwest coast, there was a history of Texas, there was a history of all this stuff. And the thing I liked most about them was they included large excerpts from diaries, from letters, diaries of explorers. And it really put me in the, the moccasins of those people, in the footsteps of these people. And I believe that I was seeing... The West through their eyes because I was reading their diaries and I, I read a lot of this stuff when I was a younger I man and I was a traveling salesman and I had a territory that spanned from Oregon to Colorado and I used to drive across the American West over country that people like John Fremont had traveled and the other explorers Lewis and Clark and all these people had gone through and when I would read these well their accounts you could read the journals of Lewis and Clark so to me the closer you can get to the moment in the past, especially by reading the words of the people who were there, the eyewitnesses and the participants. To me, that's the best kind of history.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I find myself drawn to like Bancroft's history and reading that. And it's it's so complicated because, you know, newer history has the advantage of better techniques, uh, better access to sources in some ways. Um, and then, but the, there is this kind of uh, ideology, you know, the kind of the Henry Adams, these big grand histories uh, that appeals to me as well. And it's, it's tough to find the balance because I obviously, you know, obviously when you're reading Henry Adams, you're going to be there. You know, the slant is there or the uh, very, you know, uh, specific perspective about the way things should go is, is, is underneath.
1: So this is why I like the, the works of history that are closest to the primary, the original sources as possible, because then I don't have to deal with the interpretation. And Bancroft was a historian, but for the most part, he let his characters speak for themselves. And so he he wasn't selling a particular interpretation. This was sort of history in the raw. And that's what I liked about it. And that's, that's what I was drawn to. Uh, yeah, there are big synthetic works of history where, the historian says at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, and this is what it all means. I sort of like to decide for myself what it means to me, because what it might mean to a historian is not necessarily what it would mean to me. And again, it's the experience of being there. So I like to read history books, and I'll confess that when I write history books, I like to have them read almost like screenplays, where the events unfold through the words of the people who were there and you find diaries, you find letters, and so on, rather than the historian saying, dear reader, this is the way it was. As a practicing historian myself, I know that historians, well, we don't consciously make it up, but once it's interpreted through the eyes, the minds of somebody else, then it's no longer exactly what it was when the person wrote it the first time. And I like to I I hope to recreate for my readers, my experience, the excitement I felt when I would read the diaries of David Douglas, when he was, he was an explorer back in those days. He's the one for whom the Douglas fir is named. And the um, John Muir's first experience in Yosemite and the excitement that he felt. And it's just, it's fascinating stuff. And it, it, to me, it transports, a person, me, the reader, to a different time and place. And it has, the sa- it has the same function, I think, as fiction. Fiction takes you to a different place, but it has the merit that it's actually true. It actually happened rather than being the imagination of some author.
0: So do you think we need more Barbara tuckman style history that's narrative, you're in the story? Um, because we have a lot of books that just you know, have, the, have the thesis printed on the front cover. Um, I, I had Amy Greenberg on and uh, recently and she talked about her book, uh, A Wicked War, and it's just right there. It's just right there on the cover. Uh, do you okay. think we need more narrative history like uh, some of
1: Tuckman's work? Well, I hesitate to say that anybody needs anything in particular. <laughs> okay. I would say that there's certainly room for all kinds. And the other thing I would say is that if, you, uh, if you're an academic historian, Then you're talking to people who already know sort of the what of history. You're talking to the specialists. So what they need to know is the so what about it. You have to give them an interpretation that presumably is different from the interpretation they already have. But if you're reading, if you're writing for a general audience, most of the general audience doesn't know all that stuff, and so you don't have to lead with your argument. You don't. I mean, I think you hardly have to make an argument. I I like to credit my readers with sufficient intelligence that they can draw their own conclusions if they care to. So it's just a different style. I happen to be drawn toward one. Other people are drawn toward another.
0: So um, the two, two historians that you mentioned, Baycroft and Starr, have both uh, passed on. Who are two or, two or three working historians today on the West that you're, you're excited when you see they have a new book coming out?
1: I'm gonna say that I am not in a very good position to answer that question, and here's why. Because when I start a research project, I avoid the work of other historians. And the reason I do that is that, first of all, I'm more excited by the primary sources themselves. But secondly, once you start reading the work of other historians, at least I, I have this problem. When I read the work of other historians, I cannot always remember this thing that I know. Do I know it because another historian said it or because I read it in a primary source? And the last thing is that at this point in my career, I tend to write more for general audiences than for academics. And the general audiences really don't care about the arguments of the historians. And the arguments of the historians are fine for what the historians want to argue about. This is the way you get tenure. This is the way you get promoted in the academic world. and That's okay. But, But I don't want to get involved in that. And so if I read an interpretive work on the American War with Mexico or on the Gold Rush or on this, that, or the other thing, then unconsciously, usually, I find myself having to write sort of against or for it. I know that that interpretation is there. I feel this compulsion sort of to distance myself from the interpretation one way or the other. And I don't want to do that. If I happen to wind up Well, again, so my works of history are not particularly argumentative. And so if people can read my books and they will not know what my politics are, and that's by design. And so if I write about the war between the United States and Mexico, I will say, I'll say quite clearly, it was an aggressive war. It was a a war of choice by the Polk administration, but I don't say, and that was a bad thing. You know, if the readers think it's a bad thing, that's fine. If the readers think that, well, uh, compare Alta California—that is, the American state of California—and Baja California today in terms of development, in terms of population, in terms of sort of material contribution to the world. Uh, Alta California didn't turn out so bad. So this is this is um, this this is why I'm dodging your question because I don't feel in a position to say, ah, here's a good one, here's another, because I don't read enough of that literature to be able to say with any kind of authority and confidence. I will say,
0: um, after completing my bachelor's degree in history, I did find myself kind of missing some of those crucial facts, the the arc of the story um, in a lot of ways, because I spent so much time in the arguments about what happened, that I didn't learn what had happened. And I I, I found this to be one of the, a a motivator after I finished my education to go back and really learn the stories. Um, But I, I found it was, it's disappointing that that's what I left, you know, part of the legacy of my history education was spending a lot more time in the kind of cultural studies, criticism, uh world and less in the time of learning the specifics of the history of what happened
1: In my very first semester of graduate school i found myself in a seminar on colonial history american colonial history and there was a discussion a debate within the seminar but it was a it reflected debate going on among historians of the american colonial period and it was an argument and it was argument over not what did the 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 Puritans do, but what did Perry Miller, an earlier American historian of Puritanism, what did he have to say? And I thought, wait a minute, if we're arguing about, it's one thing to argue about the Puritans themselves, but to argue about what the historians have been saying about the Puritans, that's two steps removed from where I wanna be. So I actually dropped the seminar. And, And one of the ways to sort of stay in touch with the what happened part is to, well, I make a point of teaching an introductory survey of American history every semester. And I don't presuppose any knowledge on the part of my students. So I have uh, a 50-minute class session to explain the Civil War. You know, this is what brought the Civil War on. This is what happened. And so these are people who need the facts. You know What happened? And so it, you're absolutely right. When you're in graduate school, it's sort of assumed that either you already know the facts or the facts are less interesting to us in that graduate environment than the argument. Because arguing is fun. People are drawn to graduate school in history, in part because they like to argue, the way some people are drawn to law school because they like to
0: argue. Yeah, and I, I will say this to close this. I, I see it kind of emerging in, uh, in K-12 education, which is where I work, um, in the kind of pushing further and further back these DBQs to middle school where you know, the students don't have the content knowledge to understand the primary sources to begin with. Um, and I just worry that uh, this kind of analysis before content knowledge uh, just creates these uh, you know, hollow education experiences for our kids and students that they, they leave without much.
1: Yeah, I agree entirely, because I think to understand history, you have to understand human nature. And you have a better chance of understanding human nature at 18 than you do at 14 or 12, that's for sure. And you have a better chance still at 75. So I've been teaching history for a long time, your teacher of history, and you know that history doesn't come naturally to young people, nor should it. When you're young, you should be looking ahead. But when you get older, so my most appreciative audiences and readers, are people who are 70 years old, 75 years old. They know that most of their life is behind them. When your own life is behind you, then you're sort of more inclined to look back at the history of other people as well. But when you're young, you know, you tend to think what happened before doesn't matter to me. I'm going to make the future. And so, you know, if most of your life is ahead of you, that's where you should be looking. But I do try to make the case that you will get farther in that world ahead of you if you know something about the road behind you, even if it's not your road. It's a road of your community, of your country. And this is why we teach American history. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every generation, but there's a temptation for each generation to think that if the old fogies were using the wheel, then we're gonna use a jetpack or something instead.
0: (laughs) Well, I hope that people listening to this gathered the relevance of the gold rush for understanding California today, and that hopefully they understand it a little bit better or a little bit differently uh, based on what we talked about today. Uh, one last question before I let you go. Um, where do you go to get good barbecue in Austin?
1: Oh boy, if I answer this.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
1: I'll tell you what you do in Austin. You go to any of a half a dozen places yeah. and there are three within a three minute walk of where I live and they're all good.
0: So, yeah, you can't really go wrong. I, the last time I was there, I debated waiting for Franklin's um, but then I had a, a friend uh, from Austin say, no, just go down to the trailer down the way. It'll be almost as good. <laughs>
1: That's right. I agree entirely.
0: Yep. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I, I got a lot out of this. I know the audience uh, will as well. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Good to talk to you. Good luck.
0: Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. H.W. Brands. As always, I'm going to encourage you to support this podcast by either leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping the sustainability of this podcast. Or you can contribute financially at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. Stay tuned for our next episode and have a great week.